Hi there, this is Kent Roundy, a USH med student. We're back again today with three students that we've met before. The questions that we're tackling today involve follow-up of algorithmic treatment for depression. Today I think we're going to talk about first-line pharmacological treatments of depression and that's going to be led by you, right Brandon? Yes sir. Well on that note, why don't you introduce yourself then and we'll go uh, around the circle here. I'm Brandon Trujillo, a fourth year at Rocky Vista. Hi, I'm Natalie Pratt, another fourth year from Rocky Vista. And I'm Jamin Hemingway, another fourth year from Rocky Vista. So you might think that we're overrepresented by Rocky Vista here, but I would say <laughs> quite the opposite. It's great having students from Rocky Vista here at the Utah State Hospital. Mm -hmm. All right, so uh, Brandon, we talked about the algorithmic treatment of depression just a little bit, right? And then we also tackled some high-yield questions associated with, um, or high-yield principles rather, associated with treatment of depression. And today we're going to take that, uh, some of that same information and kind of look at it from a different angle. Uh -huh. uh, as I understand this, we're going to break this down into um, first-line treatments, classes of mm -hmm. medications, yep. and then maybe talk more specifically about those classes. So what are those classes? So your first-line medications that you can use for depression are SSRIs, SNRIs, and the atypical antidepressants such as bupropion, mirtazapine, trazodone. All right, so let's start off with just the very general questions, right? Mm -hmm. We're sometimes asked, sometimes asked very general questions about treatment of depression, and among the most important things to remember is SIGI CAPS. Does uh, right. anybody want to run through that again? I know that we do that almost every podcast, <laughs> but it's worth remembering. It is, very high yield. Sleep, interest, guilt, Energy, concentration, appetite, psychomotor, and suicide. So psychomotor slowing, just to complete that out. Uh -huh. And the changes in sleep and appetite can go either direction, right? Yes. All right, so first-line treatment for depression, SSRIs. As a group, what do we need to know about the SSRIs in terms of principles that help us um, with shelf exam and uh, board exams? Well, they take quite a while to have full effect, and so patients will get discouraged because they're not experiencing the benefits of the SSRI right away. And so you have to let them know it could take four or more weeks to have full effect. That's so a question might be something along the lines of a patient walks into your office two weeks after starting fluoxamine, uh -huh. fluoxetine, uh -huh. rather, and doesn't have an effect and wonders if you should switch. What is the appropriate choice at that time? And the choice will include things like switch to a separate antidepressant, refer for uh, specialty evaluation, you know, whatever else. And the obvious answer then is? The obvious answer is to continue the current course of treatment for another couple of weeks. Okay, so I think uh, some of the information you sent my way in preparation for this was somewhere between four weeks to eight weeks. And that seems pretty standard with the information that we read. Mm-hmm. Okay. Uh, what else do we need to know about SSRIs? Anything in particular? Well, <clears throat> when switching away from an SSRI or to some different medication, you have to uh, do a washout period because if you stop them abruptly, you can kind of get some withdrawal symptoms. Uh, those withdrawal symptoms of SSRIs are similar to like the flu, mm -hmm. having fevers and chills and muscle aches and nausea and general unhappiness <laughs> yeah, I've heard that. I've heard people talk about feeling acutely suicidal as well. Uh -huh. And I've also heard a lot of people, um, maybe more so with the SNRIs than the SSRIs, uh, talk about having like electric shocks running through their 
hands and arms and, and, and feet. I, I think it's also worse with the short acting, right? So then the faxing has a very short half-life, and it's a, it's a very testable topic because almost everyone will have issues going off of it. So venlafaxine, we're just going to come to that That's in a moment later. because it's later. And I would also add there's there's one other there's medication one that has that short half-life that is in this group. What is that one? So fluoxetine is the really long one. So they're the least likely. I'm trying to remember what is. Is it paroxetine? Absolutely, paroxetine. So paroxetine and venlafaxine and desvenlafaxine oh. seem to have the shortest half-life. Now, it's my understanding that even though venlafaxine and desvenlafaxine come in these uh, extended release capsules, that that doesn't necessarily change the discontinuation syndrome. And I've heard it called discontinuation syndrome, but I think in the information you sent me, Brandon, you called it uh, serotonin withdrawal, and I suspect that either could show up on an exam. Yeah, yeah I've, I've heard both. Okay, so good to know both names, and that is essentially sudden stopping of an antidepressant that has serotonergic activity, whether it's SSRI or SNRI. Uh-huh. Or atypicals, too. Some of them have SSRI characteristics. Er, serotonin characteristics as well. Very good. There, I thought you were going to say something else. So I thought you were going to talk about washout periods for monoamine oxidase inhibitors. I was looking through some of the prescribing information for the different antidepressants in preparation for this and notice that a lot of those package inserts have specific language about the amount of time that you have to wait after stopping a monoamine oxidase inhibitor before starting an antidepressant or an SSRI. Right, I saw a bit of that too because the MAOI, or is it the, um, one of the medications changes the enzyme levels, can't remember which enzyme. Monoamine, monoamine oxidase inhibitors, okay. yeah. Okay. And so the drug will be metabolized more slowly. More, so, more you get, yeah, so you get uh, a high risk of serotonin syndrome. Uh-huh. Right. And then we're going to have a couple of special cases. So we talked just barely about the time you have to wait after you stop an, an, a monoamine oxidase inhibitor and starting these antidepressants. But in some of the examples, and we'll talk about those as we go, you also have to wait an extended period of time after stopping one of the antidepressants before starting a monoamine oxidase inhibitor, and we'll get to that as we go through the list. Okay. Let's start with uh, the specifics. We have on our list of, of medications that seem to show up more regularly in the, uh, in the kinds of materials you're reading to learn principles about management of, of depression. We have fluoxetine, escitalopram, citalopram, paroxetine, sertraline, vortioxetine, and velazodone. Does that sound like the list you have? It does. Those last two I've not seen on on study materials. So I've only seen those ones in uh, you, well, in Zonkey, but those are not on Sketchy, so those are new ones to most of us. Uh-huh. Yeah, because I'm not as familiar with those, with those two, but the rest of them are very familiar and common. So let's knock those two out very quickly. Vortioxetine, indicated for the treatment of depression, I think the most notable thing about this is that um, you have to wait 21 days after withdrawal before you start a monoamine oxidase inhibitor. I think the possibility that that's going to be tested on is very low, but that's kind of an oddball. And then velazodone doesn't really stand out, and if I remember right, velazodone was uh, approved by the FDA nearly a decade ago, so it's interesting that it hasn't shown up yet. Maybe it's because there's nothing that really stood out in terms of the package insert with strong warnings. Um, why, why does uh, veroxetine have that unique property? 
You know what? I was afraid you were going to ask me that. <laughs> I, I suspect it's Half-Life related, but I didn't take time to scroll down in the PI to look at uh-huh. the Half-Life. So who knows? Maybe that will show up at the end of the podcast <laughs> when we put comments in the uh, in there for people the to look at. The other one I've seen tested quite a bit is fluoxetine because it has, I believe, a, over a month washout period. Yep. And so that, I think, is very testable, and I've seen it before. And it also has a really high Half-Life, so I think that's a pretty reasonable theory. Yeah, it's it's it, it is what we understand to be the reason for that washout period with with uh, fluoxetine. Speaking of fluoxetine, let's start at the top of our SSRI list with fluoxetine, also known as Prozac. A couple of other things in addition to the washout period that you have to be careful with or need to be aware of. Um, any takers on what those are? Fluoxetine is the only one approved for children with depression by the FDA. And so that one's really common on other exams as well. (laughs) (laughs) So in terms of principles that you need to learn for other exams is what you mean, Mm because I don't know that we're talking about any specific exam here, correct? (laughs) I would hate to get in trouble with somebody. Um, So there's something else that I I noticed in the preparation work that you sent uh, my way, and that was that it's the only one um, approved for children, mm-hmm. but then you made the comment that there are two medications approved for treatment of depression in adolescence. Mm-hmm. And quite often I think of children as being the exact same thing as adolescence, and, and that distinction was a good one for me to see again. The wording I used was teenager, because that's what I found. Uh, teenagers, <laughs> I, you, you are correct. You used a better word than I did. So. Uh, and what are those two medications? In teenagers, you can use escitalopram and fluoxetine, and I've seen that used in practice for, for young adults. And I think physicians worried about the boxed warning. Uh-huh. We've called it the black box warning, but I think they've changed. They've asked us to change the way we talk about that to a boxed warning rather than a black box warning. Um, that boxed warning for suicidality is a big deal, uh-huh. and it dramatically changed the way that people prescribed medications for treatment of depression to children, if I understand correctly. And I don't know that that has been a durable change, but it was clearly a change. That warning, I think, was a big enough warning that a lot of people looked for the best indication they could. So even if you have a boxed warning, you were at least using a medication that was FDA approved for the treatment in that population, so teenagers. So escitalopram uh, and fluoxetine for teens. Let's go ahead and skip to, um, I'm actually holding my hands out like mirror images here. <laughs> it's, a, it's really a habit when we go to the next group of medications. So escitalopram and citalopram. And the reason I hold my hands out together like mirror images of each other is because the uh, citalopram is made of the R and the L enantiomers. Mm-hmm. And uh, Forest Pharmaceuticals at the time that uh, Celexa was one of the, what seemed to be one of the, medications that was used quite a bit at the time, um, they were able to, it seemed, extend the patent they had by refining that molecule to simply escitalopram, mm-hmm. and they, they packaged escitalopram as Lexapro. Citalopram had been uh, marketed as Celexa, and uh, they made the case that maybe it was a little bit better medication. Um, there was some data on that. I. At the end of the day, I'm not sure I I know what I believe about that Um, because the same guy that published that original data said that SNRIs were better than SSRIs and it was a clear difference and we should should be aware of that. And then he came out with a study later that said, well, 
Lexapro is like the SNRIs. And so I, I, I've just always been a little bit, I've been a little bit skeptical of that data and maybe I shouldn't be. Maybe I should just trust that if you look at the data, maybe, maybe yes, it comes a little better. Yeah, certainly. But on one of my rotations, I do remember getting asked by a physician, what is the difference between citalopram and escitalopram? At the time, I didn't know, so he told me to go look it up. <laughs> and, <laughs> and essentially, it is just the, the S antimer of it. And functionally, the difference is um, sort of in the side effect profile, it seems that escitalopram is a little kinder to, um, you know, it doesn't cause some of the arrhythmias that citalopram can cause. And so little better tolerated and in some of the reading I found they were claiming that it was more effective than citalopram so yeah I, I know when I was uh, looking at the data I think I figured out that the cost of citalopram at the time which is a racemic mister, mixture right it's the right, it's, both. it's yep. the R and the S uh, the way I did the numbers you could buy a month's worth of uh, citalopram at Walmart for four dollars and you could buy a month's supply of S citalopram through any pharmacy for about a hundred dollars. I, I did the NNTs to have one patient that would get better on escitalopram that wouldn't have got well on citalopram doing the, you know, looking at the studies that, that were provided to me at the time. Mm -hmm. And what I found was that for every 10 patients that I started on escitalopram instead, or for every, let me say it a different way, for every 10 patients that would have got well with escitalopram, I got, I would have got them well with citalopram. And when I factored in the number of patients that would not get well with either medication and the number of trials I had to do, I came to a difference of you know, numbers of thousands of dollars a month mm -hmm. that could go forever and, and with the possibility of maybe finding one in you know, some small portion. So, so, so I know that that's out there. I know that's lower, but um, I'm, I'm, again, I, I have some heartburn about that data <laughs> for a couple of reasons. Right. I think Brandon hit the really high yield point though, right? which is heart patients, you would prefer the enantiomer, right? The right, the escitalopram. I have seen material on that specifically. Yep, so I guess it's up for debate if it's actually better, but one might be a little safer. <laughs> it's probably not so much up for debate other than with uh, this very cynical person sometimes. Uh, let's see, next next group of, oh, I also thought there was something that showed up in the literature recently about citalopram and an association with birth defects, but that hasn't made it into anything that you saw. I, I know Paroxetine that is the one that jumps to mind. That's uh -huh. the one that's contraindicated for sure, but I don't know about the citalopram. I haven't seen that one. Yeah, so let's let's go ahead and jump to uh, paroxetine with that note. So this, the, it seems like in every group of medications, there's a medication that does pretty well as long as there's a pharmaceutical company pushing it. And, and I'm just not sure that uh, paroxetine has stuck around the same way that some of the other SSRIs have stuck around. In all fairness, it's a great medication. It does a great job for anxiety and depression. It has a number of FDA approvals. But it does seem like the, the baggage is a little bit higher that you have to carry to use that medication. And what is that baggage? Do you guys uh, know? So you mentioned I one mentioned of them. I mentioned the contraindicated on pregnancy. That's the big one that I know. That's a huge one. It's also, it seems to be more associated with weight gain oh. Oh, than okay. the other antidepressants, the other SSRIs, I should say. And there also seems to be, um, because of the half-life, that uh, discontinuation syndrome, I worked with a number of patients who, if they missed one dose, they were really very, very miserable. 
and that's just not quite the same with most of the other SSRIs, and especially not with the long mm. half-life SSRIs. Right. Um, just just for completeness sake, uh, Paxlon, I had to look this up, teratogenic, right? But it's cardiovascular malformations and pulmonary hypertension. Mm -hmm. right. And I don't know if that shows up the same way like uh, Epstein's anomaly shows up for the use of lithium in pregnancy or not. It does show up in study materials though. Yeah. It is mm -hmm. something you need to know. Do you ever wonder if they take the test questions from the study materials? <laughs> Someday we'll find out. If anybody, if anybody knows the answer to that, uh, email me. I do think because of Sketchy, they changed the way they test micro. Maybe we harder. were all doing too well. <laughs> wow. Micro went from a hard subject to everyone was doing great. Wow. Do you know what Sketchy is? Oh, yeah. Yeah, it's great. So I, got a lot of, I got a lot of questions on, or I've seen, heard of people getting a lot of questions on more Excella because Sketchy doesn't go over it. Mm -hmm. <laughs> Isn't that the one you get from Cat Bites? Uh, well, there's Cat Scratch, then there's there's a couple Cat ones. What's the, is that Marxella? No, I'm thinking Pasteurella is Cat Bites. I thought Pasteurella had something to do with milk because we pasteurize it. <laughs> I thought it was dogs and cats and sketchy <laughs> video, right? Bartonella Hensley, that's the cat scratch. Oh, Bartonella <laughs> Hensley, oh wow. Moraxella cateralis, maybe that's why you thought cat because of some of the other species. You know, picture yeah. memory plugs, we'll use cats, <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> like Pikmonic, but... Uh, I still don't, I don't know, know what we'll it is. We'll have to put that in the notes because I thought it was Pasteurella and you treat it with penicillin. Yeah. You know what? We that, I can see the sketching picture. I'm pretty sure that's right. <laughs> <laughs> I, I need works. to get sketchy. That's, that's all there is to it. Uh, so, so Paxil, paroxetine, and then sertraline, Zoloft. Sertraline. Yeah. I noticed that you didn't have any comments about sertraline. Seems pretty. I don't know. It's it's one of the older ones, right? Yeah, it's it's one of the older SSRIs, but uh, as I understand this, all but vortioxetine and velazidone, I think, are off patent, and I don't know about those two. Mm -hmm. So they're generic formulations available of, of the others. I think last I knew, and I don't treat as much Zola, I don't treat as much depression in the community as I did in the past. Yeah. Um, but my guess is that uh, sertraline and uh, citalopram are four dollar medications at Walmart. And I wouldn't be surprised if a couple others are as well now. I, I guess I didn't include uh, specific notes about sertraline because there wasn't any specific high yield item about that drug other than it is an SSRI. And if you're looking for one and it's in the answer choices, maybe that's a good choice. But as a first line treatment, <laughs> right? The other the thing that used to show up when we were being tested is that it might be the one medication safe in breastfeeding, and there seemed to be relatively low amounts of that molecule that was secreted into the, the breast milk. So I don't know if that stuck around though. Uh, let's, let's go ahead and make a jump to SNRIs. Alrighty. Now I don't know that SNRIs have the same kind of class effect that's really unique from the SSRIs. This is really more like, here's the SSRIs plus. Yeah, they seem to have the same side effects largely, except add on a bit of hypertension and that's your side effect profile for the SNRIs. Is that, that's not across the board, but it certainly is with at least two of the four and I'm not sure about, I know one of the four it's not, right? So duloxetine, we'll start there, doesn't have the hypertension, does it? I'm not sure. It was a safe enough generalization for the study material to make, so. <laughs> then maybe, then I'll have to go back and look at it. I know that venlafaxine and uh, uh, levomilnasopram 
both have very explicit statements in the packaging that says do not start this until you have the hypertension controlled. Mm -hmm. And I don't remember seeing that in the duloxetine packaging and I didn't look for it in the desvenlafaxine packaging. So um, that will probably be something we add on at the end whether all or partial or some have that hypertension effect. Yeah. Um, one thing important to know kind of about the SSR, SNRIs is that they help with nerve pain and sometimes you're trying to cater what drug to use to your patient based off of more than one issue. So if they have depression and diabetic retinopathy, then maybe that's the one to go with. So I'm going to tighten that down just a little yeah. bit as well. So I looked through all of the PIs for, I think I did it for at least levomilnasopran and for duloxetine. And I don't know if I did, I can't remember if I did for the venlafaxine and desvenlafaxine. Um, but clearly only duloxetine of the two that I looked at had that approval. So it has, it actually has approval for three things. It has approval for, I've got, I've got this written down so I get it right, the diabetic peripheral neuropathy for fibromyalgia mm -hmm. and for chronic musculoskeletal pain. And those are three different indications that they talk about. Mm -hmm. One of the things that surprised me a lot in the last year or so is I did a number of CMEs associated with use of opioid pain medications and uh, these were put out, if I recall correctly, by the CDC to try and reduce the amount of opioid use, which, which I, I think we believe is a factor in the nationwide epidem epidemic of opioid, uh, opioid use, right? The, the heroin and Oxycontin and all of this other stuff that has, might, be, might be a good podcast in itself, right? <laughs> um, and one of the things they talked about over and over and over was the use of duloxetine in these three pain syndromes and how that is actually a, a much better choice than opioids, particularly for non-cancer pain, over and over. So I, I was impressed by that. So we'll addend, we'll addend specifics about venlafaxine and desvenlafaxine. Now what's the difference between venlafaxine and desvenlafaxine? Uh, isn't DES has a much longer half-life, and that's all I know. Am I backwards? I don't know the answer to that. I thought DES <laughs> had a shorter half-life. Oh, then I'm backwards. I, I believe you. Let's. <laughs> right, we let's will add that. that on later. It looks like we need to pull up the package insert on Effexor slash Venlafaxine and uh, what was originally Pristique and DES Venlafaxine. But my understanding was that Venlafaxine breaks down in the liver and one of the metabolites is desvenlafaxine. And so if I understand correctly, it's renally excreted because it's been modified in the liver, which is you know, part of the goal. Of the, does the liver have a goal? <laughs> I don't know. I was taught it was the mommy of the body. And that <laughs> will actually help you with a lot. <laughs> the mommy of the body, interesting. Okay, so, um, so, so desvenlafaxine, my understanding is that it uh, has a shorter half-life because it Ven would be venlafaxine would be first metabolized in the liver. So and then one's extruded. the pro drug. Is that what you're? That's where I'm headed with that. And venlafaxine would be the pro drug. All right, we've got our crack team looking on this right now. Well, the crack <laughs> team is looking at that. Let's just uh, close the loop. Venlafaxine and desvenlafaxine very difficult because of the uh, very short half life. We talked about that before. Um, I don't know that we need to cover that again. And again, control of uh, hypertension, at least be start before starting 
venlafaxine. I think venlafaxine is um, FDA approved for some anxiety syndromes, but not for pain syndromes, because I think I did look at that, but I don't know that I looked at desvenlafaxine. So Medscape's telling me that desvenlafaxine has an 11-hour half-life, and venlafaxine is between 5 and 11. That is so strange. I think we're going to have to look that up more, because that, that, that seems unusual that the half-life would be so different for a pro-drug to a, a follow-up drug. Um, Desvenlafaxine, anything that, uh, high-yield principles for that? That one doesn't show up on you. Yeah, I'm not, I'm not so sure. You mentioned well. one, though, uh, milnacipran, I think. Is levo milnacipran. So, yeah, that and then without the levo, right? You have both versions. And I'd never even heard of those before uh, my psychiatry rotation because, once again, they're not in sketchy. So, but if you see that, that N in the middle of the word, that's kind of the, the key for me to remember. Oh, that's the S under I've never heard of. So if you see <laughs> that. Levomilnasopram. Uh, so one other thing to add with this is I, I usually don't see in the, in the prescribing information something that says very specifically, um, I, I've never seen anything that says, by the way, this medication is not approved for the treatment of. And, and it said very explicitly for levomilnasopram that this is not approved for the treatment of um, fibromyalgia. And the only thing it was approved for was depression that I saw. So um, even though the, the test prep maybe guides you for all SNRIs help with you know, the pain syndromes, I think it's probably a little different than that. And you know, just caution to know that duloxetine is the one that has the clearest indication and has had that for the longest period of time. Anything else on the SNRIs that we need to tackle? Not that I can think of. So should we go for the group of medications that doesn't seem to fit anywhere? The atypicals. <laughs> yeah. What do you want to start with? Uh, we kind of talked about this last time, the high yields with bupropion and ritazapine. But we can go over them again if you'd like. I would like that because I think repetition is probably good and I have a hunch that uh, if I had heard something two or three times it would have helped me quite a bit when mm -hmm. I was going through this. At least if you're going to spend the time to listen to this while you're driving or something, right? Right. So let's start with bupropion. This is a, a molecule that seems to affect norepinephrine and dopamine and dopamine through the uh, transporter, right? NET. Mm -hmm. So. What do you want to know about it? <laughs> <laughs> seems to work for depression, right? Seems to work, seems to make... So times you don't <laughs> want to use it, there's this really big question out there that's really high yield, right? When don't you want to use bupropion? If, they, if the patient has any sort of seizure disorder, is anorexic or bulimic. And the reason why? It lowers the seizure threshold. So if they have anything else lowering their seizure threshold, then you could cause a seizure. Increase the frequency of seizures, bad thing. I think I gave this to somebody once who told me they didn't remember part of their drive in to see me, and they drove about 40 minutes in to see me, and I was immediately thinking, hey, have you ever had a seizure before? And it turns out they had, and I didn't assess closely enough the time before. So um, I, it, it's always concerning when you have somebody who has a seizure, and you go back and, and look and find out that, Oh, they had seizures before. We didn't talk about the risk mm -hmm. um, and the possibility of this, or you know, there's something in the past that sounds like it could have been a seizure, and then you talk about the potential risk of it, right? Um, places that this is very good. Well, bupropion special because it spares libido. So if other medications are um, suppressing libido, this might be a good alternative. 
Yeah, seems like a, it's a pretty commonly used medication because of explicitly that, right? Mm -hmm. And then the other issue associated with this that's a, a good is, is smoking. Right? Yeah, it's good. It, it seems to suppress the urge to smoke. So if you're trying to quit, that might help you do that. When I talk to people who it does help, and it doesn't help everybody, but it seems to help a lot of people, uh -huh. what they tell me is uh, when they smoke, they get all of the flavor and none of the buzz. And apparently smoking doesn't taste very good if you don't get the buzz. <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> so um, I thought that was very interesting. I've heard that a couple of times now. So, so Wellbutrin, this is also interesting about Wellbutrin. I couldn't find one, one package insert that had both indications. What they did is they rebranded it completely, Bupropion, the company that owned the patent on it at the time, and called it Zyban rather than Wellbutrin. And you can't, there, it's like the two never crossed paths, which was very fascinating <laughs> to me, right? In most other package inserts or, or prescribing information inserts, you will read all of the FDA indications and approvals for a medication. And, and interestingly enough, I just couldn't find that for, for that medication. So, fun fact. I didn't even know about so that. So there's one other place I've seen it used a lot, and that is in uh, my OB rotation. They had a lot of weight loss patients. And just like you can't use it in anyone that has a history of anorexia or bulimia, it's pretty successful at helping people lose weight. Mm. Seems to be part of an FDA um, combination therapy that came out there of a number a of years ago. It included naltrexone, uh, well, uh, bupropione, and what was the third one? Do you remember? I don't. In any case... Uh, we, uh, we had a lot of issues with that because no insurance company will cover what you just mentioned. Was it Contrave? I think it's Contrave, yeah. Yeah, I think it's Contrave, and, and uh, compounding Contrave. pharmacies were able to find, uh, put that together in the same uh, dosing, right? You, so. cannot order, <laughs> you cannot order Wellbutrin or Naltrexone in the right dosages to create your own Contrave. Right, oh, so they've done tricky. that on purpose. Right, so so what they did do though, so what you can do though is you can send people to the yeah. compounding pharmacies who get the powders, and then they mix the powders of the doses that are helpful. What was the third molecule in Contrave? I only found those I two. Found it was only two. the truth. Oh, yeah. yeah. Oh, good. Because that's what we would usually just we just round up. Go, okay, the research is on twelve point five or whatever it is. You get fifteen because your insurance will cover that. Okay. So we had pretty good success with that. That's very cool. And, and definitely it doesn't have the weight gain that some of the other medications have. Mm -hmm. um, how about uh, mirtazapine next? This is another um, antidepressant that seems to be used more for its side effects than it does for the benefit of treatment of depression. Seems, you know, seems uh, fitting that we talk about mirtazapine directly after Wellbutrin because its side effect profile is weight gain and sedation. Well, Wellbutrin seems to give people energy and make them lose weight. <laughs> yeah, Wellbutrin is, uh, I'm sorry, not Wellbutrin, uh, bupropion is on one end of the spectrum, mirtazapine on the other end of the spectrum. Um, the thing that I think is most interesting about mirtazapine is that there was at least some data that was associated with TMAP, if I recall correctly, that suggested this medication was maybe more powerful or more potent than mm -hmm. some of the other medications. Um, not truly an SS, uh, not truly an SNRI, but has some of the noradrenergic activity of SNRIs with that alpha, uh, alpha, the alpha one, 
I thought it was alpha two, but I don't ever remember. It's that uh, presynaptic oh, uh, autoreceptor. That's one and two. Mm -hmm. So it's got that presynaptic mm -hmm. heteroreceptor on the serotonin uh, neurons, and it uh, shuts the off switch off, right? So it keeps the, the ability to have serotonin going beyond what the body would normally allow it to do. Mm -hmm. um, there was some discussion when I was uh, earlier in my training that maybe lower doses are more powerful than higher doses. I'm not sure how accurate that is. I'm not sure I've seen really strong data on that. And then the other issue is that this is a medication that is so sedating and causes so much weight gain that even though it's maybe more potent than the other medications, it really has become the drug of choice for um, like hospice care settings, as I understand it. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I've seen it used off, uh, I don't know if it's off-label, but I've seen it used just for sleep aid. Mm -hmm. That's probably the only place I've actually seen it written. Yeah, I, I've seen it in... Is that common to use it for sleep aid? Because... Yeah, some doctors it's pretty common. Because the next... they don't want to write the, um, the like ambience. The, the benzo... The they don't want to get into yeah. that. Yeah. All right, interesting. Cause, I mean, the next one we talk about, trazodone, that one is what I've seen most commonly prescribed for, for sleep aid. I've seen that as well. Not for depression. Yeah. <laughs> so, so interestingly enough, the, a story I once heard, I don't know how accurate this is, but a story I once heard was that before there was Prozac, fluoxetine, uh -huh. there was trazodone, Deseril. And trazodone was really the first antidepressant that wasn't a dangerous antidepressant, right? This was something that made it possible to give antidepressants to everybody without the worry of that you know, two weeks of o an overdose will kill you kind of fear that we had with the medications that preceded the SSRIs. And uh, apparently a whole bunch of, uh, allegedly, a bunch of psychiatrists seeing that uh, potential gold mine invested, and uh, Deseril really didn't have the impact that uh, fluoxetine had, right? Fluoxetine was one of the most successful drugs ever in terms of making money and seems to have been a very good medication in terms of helping a lot of people. Obviously not everybody, mm -hmm. but uh, a lot of people. And uh, trazodone is now relegated to two things, helping people get to sleep and uh, test questions about priapism. <laughs> <laughs> and, and that's unfortunate because when it's, when it's used, I have worked with patients who the only medication that really helped them get well was trazodone which was really fascinating to me. It's the quirkiness of medications. Yeah. One thing works, one doesn't. Yeah. Did we miss anything else with trazodone besides uh, the, the sedation and the orthostasis and the priapism? No. That's all That's I wrote. And then the fazodone is the last, and if I that remember correctly... Show up on have you ever heard of it, Jamin? Nefazodone? Nefazodone. <laughs> so I believe it's a molecule that is like trazodone. It was used a great deal when I started my training at the VA because there was some feeling that it might help veterans with PTSD in addition to the depressive symptoms. And uh, unfortunately, they started having a lot of case reports and data emerge suggesting that there were uh, liver issues with this medication and so the company that originally marketed this withdrew it from the United States and no longer provides it. You can find generic versions of this but it's fairly difficult and of course if you use it you want to be monitoring liver enzymes and probably not use it with statins at all. Um, that's first-line treatment of depression, right? That is. And so now that we've gone over the medications, I was kind of hoping you could tell us about which ones are actually used. <laughs> I, I haven't used this as much, and I'm not sure that I'm, I'm not sure I'm the right guy to, to answer that. Like I uh -huh. said, I once got cornered by 
uh, the Force Pharmaceutical reps and, and uh, beat up until I admitted that I should be using it like everybody else in the state, right? Uh -huh. And they said, you're the only guy that doesn't have scripts. And I'm like, look at my NNTs here. This is why I'm not using it. I'm using Celexa, Citalopram instead. And you guys sold that drug just a year ago. Tell me why you're beating me up, right? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and they were like, but this is my boss and he needs you to write scripts. So I was like, uh, listen, this is the data and here's my NNTs and here's the way I made the decision. And that, that lasted about an hour. I, I don't, you know, it was a tough day for everybody, I think, uh, because the, you know, the pharmaceutical reps are trying very hard to get medications to be used. Um, and I think as physicians, we have a responsibility to know exactly why and when and how we use those medications and to be honest in our interactions, right? That's my feeling. And so um, that just didn't go well. I think, I think though, when I left practicing a private practice which treated depression, I think I left generally with the idea that probably when escitalopram went generic, it would be largely an escitalopram market. And I think that's what ended up, quote, winning. Uh -huh. And I don't know if that's because it was the last uh, medication marketed that was an SSRI. Um, I, don't, I don't know that I ever saw anybody uh, stop by and talk about vortioxetine. I've seen a few people talk about, um, I'm sorry, Velazid. I don't know that I ever met anybody that talked about that. And vortioxetine is kind of an interesting medication. There seems to be some whispers about how it might be different than the SSRIs and maybe fit in the, into the not classic SSR, or SSRI kind of pathway. And so I'm kind of waiting to see where that one lands. But I think when it ends up being generic, I think that Zoloft and uh, fluoxetine will always stick around and uh, probably escitalopram. Okay. And then the other four, I think Wellbutrin will always be around as well. Wellbutrin, and by that I mean bupropion. Uh -huh. And I think it will always be kind of those five. And I don't think trazodone will be used for depression in a primary care setting very often. I don't think mirtazapine um, will be used in a primary care setting very often. And I struggle to imagine anybody who's going to start nefazodone unless they pick it up from a psychiatrist who's already prescribed it and can no longer see a patient. So. Um, I think it probably comes down mostly to those five. And I think any one of those five is a very reasonable place to start. It's not, it's not like you're making a bad choice. Um, when I saw patients with anxiety, I probably leaned a little bit more towards an SSRI. Well, quite a bit more towards an SSRI. And perhaps if, if I had been uh, more attentive to the specific indications at the time, when I saw OCD, I might have been more careful to use Zoloft. Um, which has the OCD indication, or fluoxetine, which has the OCD indication when I saw comorbid OCD and depression. I did see what I thought was a lot of comorbid generalized anxiety disorder and depression, and uh, I think that might speak to something like Effexor. I also think the Effexor packaging and duloxetine packaging uh, with the, I'm sorry, the Effexor and de the let me back up because I'm trying to use generic names. The venlafaxine and the desvenlafaxine, I think the way they're packaged, make those very elegant molecules. Um, so in the past you had to take that three times a day, but now with that full day, uh, one pill a day, the only drawback that's, that's really very common with that is, is that if you miss a dose, it's kind of miserable. And it is a very good medication. And at low doses, it's really 
only an SSRI. It's not until you get above around 225 milligrams a day that it becomes an SNRI. And duloxetine is also a great medication. When I gave you the medications, the five, I kind of forgot the SNRIs. Mm -hmm. And I never used, I've never used mil, uh, levomilnasopran, and so I don't know where that fits, right? Um, I would say, generally speaking, with the exception of, of Paxil, which carries more baggage than the others, right? This is just a great stable of medications to treat depression. And probably more important than which one is the winner, which one is the loser. Um, across the board, these are all great medications. Even Paxil, which has more baggage, is really a wonderful medication for a tremendous number of people. And by Paxil, I mean paroxetine. Mm -hmm. so, so I think the point is, find two or three as a primary care physician that you really like, know the ins and outs of them very well, don't feel married to them so that it's the only thing you can provide to your patients, but be able to be, uh, be able to uh, have the ability to switch to other medications when you need to. And then again, I'll, I'll just throw in one more plug, and that is that if you have somebody that fills two trials of antidepressants without a very good response, not only might you consider augmentation, which we'll talk about in the next podcast, but also strongly consider the possibility of? Tricyclics. Another condition causing the depression. Oh, oh right. bipolar disorder. Bipolar disorder, yes, just in case nobody <laughs> heard you, Brandon. All right, guys. Uh, last thoughts, high-yield pearls that we may have missed, or any other comments? Do we want to talk about serotonin syndrome at all? Oh, man, that would be a great Talked idea. a little bit about what it feels like. Do you want to, yeah, let's, because I think so that's a possibility, right? If you have a, a stem that talks about... The quick high-yield is if you have sin serotonin syndrome, um, and I think you'd probably get something to the effect of you switch your patient switch classes too quickly. Here they are, hyperthermic, right? Tachycardic, um, sweating, sweating, yeah, diaphoresis. Um, the takeaway I think for treatment is ciproheptadine, and you or you can use Ativan, or um, there's one more benzodiazepine you can use, lorazepam. Ativan and lorazepam are the same. Lorazepam and Ativan. Ativan is lorazepam. But I think the other thing you're Diazepam thinking is... Diazepam is the other one. And the other thing you might be thinking is withdrawal of the agent. Okay. Right? Mm -hmm. So anytime you have something like that showing up, you want to get everything off the out of the body that might be continuing to cause the problem. I thought that's where you were headed next. Oh. Sorry. <laughs> no. Yep. Those are the, the other ones I, I think are pretty high yield is what would you do if... If, if you saw this. Yeah, ciproheptadine is definitely the answer to that one. Yeah. 5-HT2 blocker. Mm -hmm. I didn't know that. I didn't realize it was a 5-HT2 blocker. Is it a 5-HT3 blo blocker as well? That's not what I wrote down. <laughs> <laughs> there are so many things I don't know. You know. When you guys ask me questions the same way, I get stuck. So it's like, ah, oh, shoot. I should have read more. Is that what it feels like when I'm asking you guys questions and you know the answer? <sighs> we have a surface level knowledge of many things. <laughs> you guys have a great knowledge of many things, and this was a great example of that. Anything else you would add, uh, Jamin? No, I think that was, this was a very, uh, a very good podcast that should buy you quite a few questions. Mm -hmm. Good. I'm glad you so high yield on I this think, one. I think so. Okay. This one we really stuck to the high yield. And not just for exams, but for Real rotations. Life. You'll write these a lot. I've written a lot of these. So, so maybe not just rotations, but maybe even other. It's a there are important principles for other exams as well. Exams. So depression well, and OBGYN things yeah, along those but lines. You'll see these patients, and you're attending. Will ask you, what should we do? This is a common pimp. Is what 
Shruti first. What's next? So. So, so let me just back up one second. I say that all the time. Uh, a common pimp. I don't know if other people use that that might listen to this <laughs> podcast, but uh, apparently in medicine, the, the idea that somebody, an attending physician, asks a question of a medical student, they call that pimping. Yeah. And so you may hear that show up in these podcasts periodically. But yes, commonly used. I guess I, I do think it has to be a step further too, right? Because asking questions is not pimping. Pimping is almost a harsh... Doesn't it, say, doesn't it like stand for something? something? Yeah, it feels more interrogating. Like, yeah. uh, like you feel attacked you when you're when you're being pimped. Really? That's yeah. that's yeah. how I've understood it. And I've only feel I feel like I've only been pimped one time because of this. But On I'm this po- rotation? No. Okay. My entire, my entire year and a half, <laughs> uh, I got a lot of questions, but I only felt really like this person was trying to make me look dumb <laughs> um, once, mm. and it wasn't even my preceptor. It was. Some other doctor walked in the room and started That's attacking funny. me. I was like, whoa. Sort of like, down, a, buddy. What, what's that defense mechanism where you walk in the room and <laughs> you can't take out your aggression on the person that really you want to, so you kick the dog? Is that this placement? <laughs> uh, I don't know. Yeah, that sounds right. Another sounds podcast. Right. Another podcast, too. <laughs> yeah. Thanks, Jamin. Anything else you would add, Natalie? No. Very thorough, Brandon. Good job. Thank you. Well, I guess. I never really interpreted pimping that way. Oh. <laughs> Just regular questions for you. Yeah. <laughs> it, it, under that definition, Brandon always feels pimped. Oh. No. <laughs> <laughs> it's like, yeah, I've been asked a lot of questions. This is, <laughs> I've only been come after a couple of times. One of those times, Sketchy saved me because it was like, what was the side effect of some drug? I was like, I remember the little... The twisty drawing. streamer on the, on the picture and I was like oh it's a arrhythmia it's like oh I didn't think you'd get that <laughs> maybe I need I need to read sketchy for psychiatry maybe I can remember stuff a little better if I do that it's I think fun. I have the physical book I paid for so I can I can let you borrow it you know what I I have a tough time borrowing students books maybe I'll buy it myself oh. and get a copy for the hospital here that might be a good idea all right, so a 15-minute podcast has turned into roughly 45 minutes. Very well done. It seemed to go very, very quickly. Really appreciate the work you did, Brandon. Any last words that you would add before we stop? Nothing I can think of. On that note, team out. Team, team out. out.